great honor to recognize those who have served our country faithfully. We call them veterans, be it I call them patriots. Can we pray together this morning? Our God, thank you. We thank you for this free land that we have. We thank you for the, the men and the women who put their all on the line so that we could have this freedom that we still have. We thank you that they were willing to leave home and friends and join themselves with a group of other soldiers that since that time most likely have become dear friends to them as they stood shoulder to shoulder and served our country. Reminds me, O oh God, of you sending your son. He, he left the, the throne of heaven. He left friends. And he came to this earth. And he's willing even today to stand shoulder to shoulder with those who will trust in him and him alone. And so the ultimate victory, the ultimate freedom we have not only has been blessed by God, but has been given by you, O oh God, to this country. May we as a church here at Grace Community Church, may we never forget. May, may we always be aware of those who have served our country, who have kept us safe, and even those who are still in that occupation. The soldiers, no matter where they are, I, I ask, oh Lord God, that today they would recognize the thankfulness of a country for their willingness to give of themselves. I pray, oh God, that today would be a special day for our veterans. It's just not a day when the mail's not delivered, when stores aren't open. It's a special day of when a country is thankful, where a church is thankful for their service. May they always be reminded of how much we appreciate them. And so, God, thank you. We praise you, O oh God, and even right now we ask that as these gift boxes stand in front of us, they represent a child somewhere in this world. We may not have any idea where these boxes will finally end up, but God, I'm glad that you are already preparing the hearts of the children as they receive these boxes, may the joy, O oh Lord God, that they experience from receiving a gift, many from them, for them, as this might be the very first time. I pray, O oh God, that their hearts would be warmed with the gift, but their ears would be opened to the greatest gift yet that is offered, and that's through Jesus Christ. 
for all those who will be actively involved in passing out and preparing to pass out these gifts. I pray for their strength. And I ask you, O Heavenly Father, that each one of these boxes would be a life-changing box, not just for a child, but maybe for a family and maybe ultimately for a nation. A family that, a child that needs to hear the gospel, a family that needs to hear the gospel, and a nation that needs to be changed by the gospel. Oh God, may you honor your name. May you draw many unto yourself as millions of children across this world will hear of the glory and the wonder that is in Jesus Christ. So, Father, we commit these boxes to you for your honor and for your glory. Maybe someday we may very well come across an individual who, whose life was changed from a box that they received, a very colorful box. And in it, they found the greatest gift of all. And Lord, but if not, this side of glory, when we get to the other side, we'll join them in singing, Worthy as a Lamb who was slain. And so, God, I, I thank you. And thank you for all who participated in this, this wonderful exhibition of grace and your love. And I pray, O oh Father, that your rich blessing would be upon each child as they receive this gift. May your word this morning ring true on our hearts. As we look to you, O oh Lord God, may you teach us and remind us of, of your great love. And for this, we will praise you and thank you in the matchless name of Christ our Savior. Amen. And this morning I'm about to do something that ultimately I've never done before. And some of you are saying, oh, you're going to preach well today. Okay, well, we'll, we'll try our best. But, uh, but what I'm speaking of is I want to read for you a story. A story that was written by one of my master degree uh, professors by the name of Haddon Robinson. You may have come across his name or maybe have heard his name before. In our present time, Haddon Robinson was known as an individual that taught preachers how to preach. But one individual said, not only did he teach me how to preach, but he taught me how to love through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this morning, the story I wish to read for you is entitled, The World's Best Love Story. It's taken from an obscure book. I'm sure not many of you have read that book, but it's taken from the book of Hosea, the first three chapters. 
It's not a book that we would most likely run to to find encouragement, but yet in it is a great love story. Let me begin. Ralph Waldo Emerson observed that the entire world loves a lover. And if he was right that all the world loves a lover, then the best book in the entire Bible should be the prophet's prophecy known as Hosea. In some ways, the story of Hosea differs little from millions of other stories that have taken place every year in all of the cities of the world. It's the story of a broken vow, a broken home, a broken heart, a broken life. But in other ways, the story is so utterly unique that it ranks as one of the most amazing in all of literature. Now, we've ignored the story of Hosea. We've clipped it from our Sunday school lessons and shunned it from our pulpits. But God has shown the sad, sordid story of his brokenhearted prophet to reveal his love and demonstrate his grace. The setting for the story of Hosea takes place in the city of Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. Hosea, a young preacher, is led by God to meet with, to meet and woo and win a young woman by the name of Gomer. Gomer was a part of a soft and easygoing life of her time. But Hosea brought much to this marriage. He brought the unsquandered treasure of her young man's purity, for Hosea had never sacrificed upon some wayside altar. And as a result, he came to this supreme moment in his life with much to give. I imagine that Gomer must have been swept off her feet by this young man of genius who had the heart of a hero, the passion of a poet, and the zeal of a saint. Now a preacher's life, like any man's, I guess, is blessed or ruined by the woman he marries. I, I hadn't Robinson said that, okay? I just want to let you know, right? <laughs> so I imagine that when Hosea was told by God to meet and marry Gomer, he must have thought she was as pure as the lily of the valley in his favorite love poem, the Song of Solomon. But as the days passed and he grew to know her better, he realized that petals of her purity had already been taken and trampled under the passions of vile and impure men. Yet it was a command from God in verse 1 of the prophecy that Homer, that Hosea was to marry Gomer. And so I imagine that the prophet thought, well, her past wasn't very good, but since God has brought us together, our future will be filled with happiness and delight. But he was wrong. Perhaps Hosea didn't have the time for, the, for his pleasure-loving young wife that he, should have been, that he should have had. For Hosea was attempting to save a nation. 
Hosea the prophet realized that the nation of Israel would fall victim to the war machine of Assyria unless it repented of its sin. And so he spent his days and nights calling the people back to God in all-out effort to avert disaster. But Gomer didn't share the heart of his righteous, love, religious husband. She thought things stupid that he thought serious. And often she pouted that Hosea cared much more for his preaching than he did for her. And so hit So bit by bit, Gomer drifted back to the old wild life from which she had come. And day after day, Hosea returned to some home, wondering where his wife was. Night after night, he lay awake long after it was good for him, waiting for his wife to return. And I'm confident that the prophet must have prayed. I'm confident that he had taken his domestic burden to the Lord. And one day it seemed God answered his prayer, for Gomer gave birth to a baby. And I imagine as the prophet held that infant in his arms, he said, This is God's doing. This little baby will take one hand and put it around my heart, and the other hand and put it around Gomer's heart, and he'll draw our lives together. And he called the name of the child in verse 4 of chapter 1, Jezreel. And the name Jezreel was the name of a city that had played a tragic part in Israel's history. It was in Jezreel that the apostasy under Ahab and his queen Jezebel came to its frightening conclusion. For it was in Jezreel that Jezebel was hurled from the window of her palace And her body was eaten by dogs in the streets of Jezreel. So when Hosea called his son Jezreel, he was making the boy, his marriage, his family, an object lesson of God's relationship to his people. It would be as though a Jew today would call his son Dachau, the name of one of those horror camps that Hitler used to murder Jews in World War II. That name, Dachau, would bring back The cemetery of memories, grim ghosts of bygone days. And so when Hosea called his son Jezreel, he was making the boy and his marriage and his family a kind of object lesson of God's relationship to his people. Every time he summoned his son, it played. Every time he called Jezreel in the marketplace, that name sounding in the ears of the pious Jew would be a reminder of the fact that the past God had dealt with the nation's sin. And then they had a second child, a little girl. And they called her, according to verse 6 of chapter 1, Lorurama, which means no pity. Then after little Lorurama was weaned, they had a third child, a second son. And they called his name, according to verse 9 of chapter 1, Lo-Ramai, which means in the Hebrew, no kin of mine. Now these three names of Hosea's children, Jezreel, Lo-Rama, which means no pity, Lo-Amain means no kin of mine, do a couple of things. One, they 
give us a sketch of the nation Israel until the present hour. But secondly, they give us an insight into what was taking place in the prophet's family. Because the name of this third child, Lo-Amani, which means no kin of mine, indicates that in bitterness and in brokenness, Hosea became possessed with a suspicion that because a that that caused, excuse me, a damning certainty that those children born into his house were really not his children at all. But even though Gomer was living in adultery, Hosea refused to divorce her. And then one day, another blow fell. Gomer left him. You can imagine that Hosea came home and found a note on the nursery door. She told him she was leaving. She was tired of being tied down. She wanted to have her freedom. She was going out back to the culture. And she wanted him to know that he was not the father and he was not to bring the children. And so you can imagine, you can imagine what happened to the prophet that night. He has to be both mother and father to them. He fixes them a bit of supper and hears their childish prayers, tucks them into bed, watches them as they drift off to sleep. But there's no sleep for Hosea. For even though Gomer has left his home, she's not left his heart. You can imagine how the gossip went across the back fences of the community, mouth to ear, the prophet's wife has left him prophet's wife is gone or some folks would say well it serves him right I mean he's been so busy telling everyone how to live their their life he couldn't hold his own family together but there were others who knew Hosea and knew Gomer they knew how she had played him false who simply shrugged their shoulders and said well now that she's gone She's better off forgotten. But Hosea loved Gomer, and he could not forget. And I suspect that when Gomer left Hosea, she must have thought she was bettering herself. Undoubtedly, she was lured from his side, from the whispers of exotic food, exciting clothes, and a dynamic lifestyle. But as it happens, with folks who take the path of life, it seems at first to lead up to the top, but has a way of turning and then going down to the bottom. And that's what happened in the life of Gomer. After she left Hosea, she passed from man to man until she fell into the hands of a man who could not provide for her the basic necessities of life. And all that time, Hosea watched from a distance and the downward path his wife had taken. And finally, when he realized she was living with a man who could not provide the necessities of life, he went to the man. Are you the man that's living with Gomer, the daughter of Diblim? Well, what if I am? I'm her husband. The man clutches his fist. He's preparing for a fight. Hosea said, no, 
you don't understand. I love my wife, and I wonder if you would do me a favor. I wonder if you would take some of my gold, some of my silver, and buy for her the things that she needs. The man stares incredulously at the prophet and then sees the money in his outstretched palm and thinking, yeah, there's no fool like this fool. He agrees to the preacher's plan. But you say, to be that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that a man is going to pay good gold, silver, and good gold and pay to keep his woman who's betrayed him. But you find that, don't you, in chapter 2, verse 5, where Hosea says, their mother has been unfaithful and she has conceived these children in disgrace. And And he said, I'm going after my lovers, my lovers who gave me my food, my water, my wool, my linen, my oil, and my drink. But in verse 9, Hosea laments, but she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, and I was the one who lavished on her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. And so someplace in the shadows, we see Hosea. He catches a glimpse of his woman who fills his heart and stands and watches as This lover of hers comes home with the good things that Hosea's money has purchased. He watches as Goma rises from the hut and throws her arms around this man's neck and thanks him profusely for the things that true love provided and treachery offers and fully accepts. But if you're tempted to sit in judgment on Gomer, I remind you that's the way you and I have acted all our lives. It's from the hand of God that we receive life's rich blessings. Food for our table, clothes for our body, and a warm place to live. And yet how easily we can thank everyone and everything except God who provided them. We can thank our government for its supply. We can thank our family, our friends the strength of our own right hand, everyone and everything except the God from whom the blessings flow. And you say to me, look, does God really love us like that? And I say to you, everything in the word and everything in the world testifies that God does love you just like that. And we've wanted desperately to have our own way. We flung away from God in in a fit of rebellion. And when we have run from him, we think he's gone. He's out of our lives. We don't have any use for him anymore. And there's a tap on our shoulder. And we turn and we find he's there. And he says, I love you. And I want you to know that after you're through with your running and going astray, I'll be here to take you to myself again. You say, well, does God really love us like that? And I say to you that everything in the word and everything in the world testifies that God does indeed love you just like that.
God gives to us metal in the mine. God gives to us trees in the forest. Then the miner with the skill God gave him into the or digs into the earth and he digs up the metal. And the woodman with his with his skill chops down the trees. And then when the metal is mined, and the smithy takes the metal and forms it into a spike. When the tree is cut, the carpenter comes and forms it into a cross. And when the cross is ready, God comes. And in Jesus Christ, he stretches his arms along the arms of that cross and allows soldiers to pound with cruel violence, nails into his hands and feet. And he dies there on that cross for you and for me, that we might have the forgiveness of our sins, that we might have eternal life, that we might have for heaven forevermore. This is even our God, and there is none like unto him. <laughs> and yet even though Hosea was paying the keep for Gomer, she did not change. And so in the latter part of chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, Hosea decides to take his hands off of her life. She has planted the seed, let her eat the bitter fruit. She had planted the wind, she'll reap the whirlwind. And so he says in verse 14 of chapter 2, Therefore, I am now going to allure. I will lead her into the desert. And there in the desert, speak tenderly to her. There in the desert, I will give her back the vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she will sing as in the days of her youth and in the days she came up out of Egypt. The word Achor from the valley of Achor, verse 15 simply means the valley of trouble. And Hosea is saying, I'm going to lead her out into the wilderness. I'm going to allow her to stumble in the valley of Accor. And there, in that awful, dreadful place, I will open to her again the door of salvation and hope. And what God did with the nation of Israel, God sometimes does with us. Sometimes when we persist in our running and in our going astray, it's almost as if God took his hands off of our lives and let us suffer and feel the consequences of what we did. We stumble into the valley of Achor, place of broken dreams and broken hearts and broken lives. But it's often in that dreadful place that God opens to us a door of salvation and hope. At any rate, that's what happened in the life of Hosea and Gomer. Because when you turn to chapter 3, you discover that Gomer had sunk lower and lower until she fell into the hands of a man who did not care for her at all. And that man decided he would sell her into slavery. In the ancient world, slavery was an established institution. There was hardly a city that did not have some time during the year or many times during the year a place where men and women were brought and sold like animals. Secular historians say that in some of the auctions 
that when a woman was, was auctioned, she was stripped of her clothes and forced to stand before the gaze of the crowd. It was evidently to such a place that Gomer was taken and to such a place that Hosea was called to go. You can imagine the scene. Gomer led up to the slave block. And when the folks noticed on the edge of the crowd, there was Hosea. And you can hear the gossip. Well, he's come to see her get what she deserves. Here to see her get her punishment, be sold into slavery. Then the bidding begins. Someone says, I'll give you 10 pieces of silver for her. Someone else says, I'll give you 12. Hosea says, I'll give you 15. Somebody else said, well, I'll give you 15 pieces of silver and and Homer of barley. Hosea said, I'll give you 15 pieces and his Homer and a half of barley. And the gavel sounds. And Hosea pushes forward to buy his wife. But he doesn't buy her to punish her. He, he buys her to redeem her. That's what he says in chapter 3 and verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and, a, and, and about a omer and a half omer of barley. And I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any other man. And so I will live with you. What Hosea is saying is something like this. I have bought you and now I want you to live with me. I want you to be faithful to me and I promise you that whether you're faithful to me or not, I will be faithful to you. You say to me, how could any man do that? I mean, how, how could any man go before a crowd that knew him and buy his wife to nurse her back to purity? How could anyone do that? And the answer to that is found in verse 4 of chapter 3. In one of the great sentences of the Bible, the Lord said to me, Hosea, go, show your love to your wife again, for she is loved by another. She's an adulteress. But love her as the Lord loves Israel. For they turned to other gods and loved the sacred raisin cakes, which were offered on idol altars. And the reason that Hosea was able to love Gomer as he did was that the love of God was shed abroad in his heart. And Hosea is playing the part with Gomer that God has played with you all of our life and that God has played with me. And from this prophecy of Hosea, there are just two lessons. The first is, for those of you who have come to know God through faith in Jesus Christ, you're a Christ follower. And that lesson comes from verse 1. The Lord said to me, go, show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another. She's an adulteress, but love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. And then you get again in verse 3. You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or intimate with any other man. And so I will live with you. And what Hosea is saying is, look, I've redeemed you. 
I bought you to myself. And now I ask you to live with me and for me in faithfulness. This is one lesson that comes from this story. And that is that God does not love you because of what you do. God always loves you in spite of what you do. God does not love you because of what you are. He always loves you in spite of what you are. But when you understand how much he loves you, respond to him with love and praise and sacrifice and service. But mark it well. God does not love you because of who you are. God does not love you because of what you do. God loves you in spite of what you are and in spite of what you do. That's a hard lesson for us to learn. Many of us bring from the other old life the bookkeeping mentality the, which says, I'll, I'll do certain things and then God will do certain things for me. And so in a way, we, he will reward me. That's heresy. That's not the gospel. And that's not the truth of God. God doesn't bless us or reward us because of what we do. It's in spite of what we do. If you decide to even give your life to God in some distant place, and if you spend your life there, God would not love you any more than he loves you right now. And if you were to give your money to your local church or a Christian organization or to someone serving Christ, give it all to them. Make the kind of sacrifice, but God would not love you more than he loves you right now. You stand beneath the cross and see Jesus died for you. It's when you understand that love that grace that you respond in wonder and worship and praise. When theologians talk about, they talk, talk about, they talk about grace. And you say to a theologian, well, what do you mean about grace? And they say in their kind of abstract way, well, grace is unmerited favor. You know what that means. God's grace that the favor that God bestows upon us is without merit. There's nothing we can do for it. Hear it well. Mark it down. Put it where you put sacred truth. God does not love you because of what you are. God does not love you because of what you do. He loves you in spite of what you do. And he loves you in spite of who you are. But when that dawns upon you, when you realize that unconditional love of God, no strings attached, then you respond with love and worship and praise and service. That's one implication that comes from the prophecy of Hosea. But there's a second lesson. And that lesson is directed for those of you who have not yet come to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you may still be on the way, but you're not there yet. And that lesson also comes from chapter 3. You may feel sometimes deserted. You may cry from the depths of your heart, where is God? 
Where is he that I might know him? And the answer from the book of Hosea is that God isn't lost. You are. He has pursued you up a hill called Calvary. And through the tunnel of an empty tomb and down the labyrinthian way of life to a place tonight or to wherever you are at this time. And he pursues you because he wants so much to make you his own. Clovis Chappelle was a noted preacher of the last century, and he told of a young man who lived in Chicago who went down to the bluegrass region of Kentucky where he met and wooed and won a young woman who ultimately he brought back to Chicago as his bride. They enjoyed three lovely years of marriage. And then one day, in the midst of a sickness and a, and a seizure of pain, the young woman lost her mind. I mean, when, when she was at her best, she was a bit demented. At her worst, she would scream, and the neighbors complained because the screams cut the air, and it was hard to live with. And so the young businessman left his home in the middle of Chicago and went to the, one of the western suburbs and he built a house, determined that there he would try to nurse his wife back to health and sanity again. One day the family physician suggested that perhaps if he were to take his wife back to Kentucky, that something there, familiar surroundings, would help her to restore her sanity. And so... They went back to the old homestead. Hand in hand, they walked through the old house where memories hung on every corner. They went down to the garden and walked down by the riverside where the first cowslips and violets were at bloom. But after several days, nothing seemed to happen. So defeated and discouraged, the young man put his wife back in the car. And they headed back to Chicago. And when they got close to the house, he looked over and discovered that his wife was asleep. It was the first sleep, restful sleep she had had in many weeks. And when he got to the house, he lifted her from the car and took her inside. Placed her on the bed and realized she wanted to sleep some more. So he placed a cover over her and then just sat by her side and watched her through the midnight hour, watched her until the first rays of the sun reached through the curtain and touched her face. The young woman awoke, and when she saw her husband seated by her side, she said, I seem to have been on a long journey. Where have you been? And that man, speaking out of days and weeks and months of patient waiting and watching, said, My sweetheart, I've been here waiting for you all this time. And if you ask me, where is God? The answer is very much the same. He's right here. Right here speaking to you again right here waiting for you to respond with love to his love, waiting for you to respond with trust to promise, waiting for you to cast yourself 
with a reckless abandon upon the grace of God and waiting for you to discover in the depth of your, of your experience what it means to be loved by God according to the love he demonstrated through the prophet Hosea. Shall we pray in closing? God, your love is amazing. The story may have been a little long for us to read and to hear. But it is that truth. It's the truth of your love. It's a kind of love that goes beyond boundaries. A kind of love that seeks us when we're lost. A kind of love that woos us when we walk away. The kind of love that's demonstrated for us in the scriptures. This wonderful book of Hosea. It's a demonstration of your love, not only for the nation of Israel, but for all of mankind. And we who are on the slave market of hell, being bid upon by the demonic forces, I'm thankful that you come through and you claim us for your own. And that it is that love and it is that grace upon which all of us can fall. For it is by grace we've been saved through faith. I don't know, O Lord God, where many of the hearts are here this morning. Some are desperately hurting and wondering where you are. Some have determined to begin to journey away. And others don't even know who you are at all. But I ask this morning, O Lord God, that somehow, in some way, not only would you reveal yourself to those who are wondering, Would you, O Lord God, capture those who are beginning to walk away? And would you, O Lord God, please introduce yourself to those who do not know you at all? And it's all because of your love. So, Lord God, as we close this service, as we empty this auditorium, As we go about our everyday activities, oh Lord God, may we not forget of your love. And may we passionately and purposefully worship and adore you with all of our strength, with all of our might. Every part of our being. May we worship and serve you because of what your love has done for us. And we will be careful to praise you and thank you. In the matchless name of Christ our Savior.